Hey, it's Luke. This week on the podcast, we have the second episode of our occasional series on the world and mental health. Now that we've done two and we're working on ideas for more, it feels like a real enough thing to give it a name. We're calling it Range of Care. It's kind of catchy. Today, our series host, Meg curtin Bear speaks with Vinay Narasakunkit, a professor at Gonzaga whose research focuses on the intersection of cultural psychology and clinical psychology. He studies the psychology of globalization and youth marginalization, as well as the cultural shaping of social anxiety and happiness and the cultural shaping of attitudes toward climate change. It's foreshadowing. Maggie Gates is a climate justice advocate and educator. She graduated from Gonzaga in 2019 with a degree in political science. And shortly after, she co-founded Sunrise Spokane, a youth-led climate activism group. We had Rosie Joe and other Sunrise activists on the podcast before. The group's model is brilliant and will hopefully be transformational for all activism, but it feels especially necessary for something as big as climate change. Meg, as you recall, is a psychotherapist and co-owner of Wellness Therapy Spokane. The three of them, I'm sad to report, were joined by me, but I mostly tried to stay out of the way. The discussion, as is probably clear, is about the tremendous challenge of climate change and the tremendous impacts of that challenge on mental health. The mental health of everyone, but perhaps especially the mental health of young people who will bear a disproportionate trauma and hardship from our collective inaction, but who are also creating a kind of activism that feels completely different than the climate activism of the 90s and aughts. We cover a lot of ground, including but not limited to Vinay's work and research on the psychological underpinnings of both activism and climate denial, which were fascinating. There's a certain thread of discourse that climate deniers are irrational or negligent or stupid or worse, and that can feel comforting calling your ideological enemies stupid or evil. But if this is a worldwide problem, which it is, it's going to take a broad coalition of people fighting for it. So what are we going to do about that? Are we going to bring them in or continue calling them out? Speaking of centering the person in our discussions about climate, we talk about the tremendous emotional toll climate change can take. Maggie shares some really heartbreaking stories about her work in Sunrise, like this. So I was leading a training for about 30 high school and middle school students in February of 2019. So pre-COVID. And there was a young woman, high school student, who was talking about uh, a kid in her class at school who expressed that he wanted a meteor to just hit Earth and burn it all before climate change can ruin everything. And I saw everyone nodding their head. Oh, yeah. Huh? Yep. I've heard that. And I said, wait, so... So how many of you feel like many of your peers are deeply nihilistic or deeply unconvinced that a better future is possible? And everyone raised their hand. Every single person raised their hand. That's, I think, what we're talking about, right? That's the deep, deep depression that feels totally hopeless. That's why suicide rates are up. It's it's a crisis. It really is. This story hit me really hard for kind of personal reasons. I had a similar experience as an 11-year-old, more in a, a religious context because of the church I was raised in, where I realized or, or thought I realized or had a epiphany that because of the teachings of the church and the way my life was going, the, the ideas I'd had quite literally, there was no way within that theological construct that I was going to heaven. I was definitely going to hell. And I can tell you, again, not exactly the same thing, but for an 11-year-old who's just maybe for the first time starting to make broader connections around beha- like how the world works and moves around you, 
to be sort of blossoming into a sense of self-awareness only to realize that you're doomed. (laughs) Something you have no control over has doomed you. Speaking only for myself, let's just say it was not untraumatic. So the obvious question there is, how can we create an environment where these young people recognize the scope, which they clearly do, so we probably don't even need to help them with there, because if they already feel doomy, then they recognize the scope. So how do we help them feel prepared and empowered to win, to beat it, to rise to the occasion and overcome? These are the people who are going to be on the front lines after we're gone, and they'll be facing down worse disasters than we've yet seen. Their life is going to be more impacted than ours ever will be. And that's where Maggie's experience in Sunrise is really useful. The climate fights of my youth, our youth, the climate fights in the 90s were always oppositional. Loggers versus the spotted owl, carbon activists versus the oil and gas industry. It was always environment versus economy. What Sunrise and other young activists are doing, and we've talked about this before, so I'll I'll link to the other Sunrise episode if we want to get deeper into this, is environment and economy. They found a way to sort of talk about how the transition to a carbon-free world is going to require a transition to a carbon-free economy, thus pairing the environment and the economy, all of our livelihoods, and a, a variety of other things as well, into a single coherent whole and a single coherent argument about how to make everyone's lives better while we're saving the earth. But like we said, that work takes a psychological toll on the young people leading the movement. So again, how do we protect them? Or more importantly, how do we keep them optimistic, keep them empowered, and care for them while also helping them feel like they have a voice? You'll hear Vinay have a sort of an aha moment about psychology as a profession. Your therapist, my therapist, therapy in general, tends to help people make personal changes, internal changes, to deal with external reality. But what happens when the external reality you're grappling with, say climate change, for example, pulling one out of the blue, is such an existential threat that fixing yourself is not enough? What power can an internal practice like therapy have when the responses people are having are to the heat death of their planet and everything on it? It seems like a call for a new kind of therapy. And Meg, you'll hear Meg say that she thinks this is the ultimate clinical piece. We need to be prepared for some amount of depression and anxiety in response to very real, very rational environmental strain, stress. And so how do we validate what are appropriate responses to that? We feel anxious when we don't have complete control over things. It's a natural human response. Climate change is the definition of something that no single one of us has any control over at all. So anxiety is a rational response, not an irrational one. So how do practitioners, how do therapists account for that? There's another piece here too that you'll hear Vinay and Meg talk about. How do we take that internal practice and make it external, not just working on themselves, but also working on the world? You'll hear Meg say that she's already started using this in her practice. So this conversation is already sort of born fruit for her at least. We also spend some time on the longer term, bigger picture. Like we talked about before with skeptics versus activists, we have an observable communication gap between groups that is the result of our cultural upbringing and how that affects the way we think about our place in the world. So how do we bridge that gap? How do we bring more people into the fold, into this feeling of action? Who's working on that bridge? Again, how do we make it not loggers versus spotted owl, but loggers and people who care about the spotted owl together working toward a better future or just a future, any future at all? It's a really wonderful conversation. 
and it's beefy. So let's just dive in. <laughs> dive into the beef. Wow. Uh, really, really mixed that metaphor, Baumgarten. Uh, I'm just going to roll with it. Maggie Gates and Vinay Narasakun Kit in conversation with Meg Curtin Raybear and a little bit of me on mental health and climate change. Range of Care, episode two, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Meg Curtin Raybear, and I'm here with Vinay, Maggie, and Luke. And today we're going to talk about the environment and mental health. And before we get started, I just wanted to share just a little something as a clinician. From my perspective, talking about mental health has become something that is a little bit easier for us to do right now. I mean, if there's a silver lining to everything COVID, it is that we are all a little bit more aware that our feelings need to be noticed. It's hard to carry all this and, and not have that happen. As therapists, it's really our job not only to be present for what people bring into the room, but to have an idea about what a community needs from us, right? What's going on? What are the trends? I often call myself a theme miner, right? I am constantly looking for and and thinking about what are the things going on in my community. More or less in tandem with COVID and thinking about all the smoke we experienced this summer, one of the things on our plate as therapists is being able to talk to people, in particular young people and think new parents, right? Even grandparents, frankly, about climate change and how it feels to have air that's not breathable, to be worried about your children, how it feels to be worried about environmental disaster. I mean, we'll, we'll kind of unpack all of this together. But I think part of what's really important about this conversation today is it's not going to go away. And I think bringing people together and starting to have conversations about how we talk about really tough things, mm -hmm. how we understand how other people might think about and hear really tough things, it just makes us better, better therapists, better community members. And so it's on that note that I thought we'd chat about mental health and climate change. Two topics that I think we have a really good handle on and that are going really well uh, <laughs> all the time. So this is gonna be actually maybe, I think it's like a, a mission accomplished moment, right? No, just kidding, I'm sorry. Well, and that's the thing, right? How do we talk about all of this and not have everyone leave feeling really heavy? So that's another piece of it. So I thought maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about who we are. I'll save my bits for last. And Maggie, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about you and what you do and who you are. So I graduated from Gonzaga in 2019. I studied political science and women and gender studies. And I took some environmental studies classes on the side. And that's in those classrooms is really where my... Um, concern about the climate crisis and environmental injustice really, really started. So after I 
graduated in May of 2019, I kind of jumped into working on um, climate issues locally in Spokane. So that summer, myself and another young person, Maddie, started a local group called Sunrise. And Sunrise is a, is a national movement of young people who are concerned about climate change and are fighting for a livable future. So we started this group in Spokane to bring attention to the issue, to organize and agitate young people on climate change and start sort of pushing our, our local leaders towards um, taking action on this issue, bolder action than, than just passing, you know, um, small reforms, right? We're sort of really committed to this broader societal change. So a lot of that included education and trainings and also getting out in the street and, and making noise. So a little, a little of both, a little education, a little action. Besides Sunrise, I was also working at an environmental nonprofit called the Lands Council that worked on conservation and restoration and um, different environmental issues locally as well. So yeah, that's a, that's a little bit about me. Okay, thank you. Vinay, what about you? Would you mind introducing us? Or introducing yourself, excuse me, a <laughs> sure. little bit. Sure, um, I'm a um, professor of psychology at Gonzaga University. I'm a cultural psychologist, so I study how culture sh shapes mental processes. And I have a, a PhD in clinical psychology, so I, I do kind of also have often looked at how mental health experiences and manifestations can be shaped by our cultural understanding. Um, but also, I also kind of look at non-mental health aspects and attitudes and habits of thinking. And so I grew up in Japan, actually. So I, oh, wow. yeah, um, so I do a lot of cross-cultural research where I compare, uh, you know, the psychology of Japanese on average and, and Americans on average, and it's a good contrast model. So so in, in a lot of that work, I've worked with a colleague who, who specializes in understanding uh, perceptions of control and how people uh, perceive control and experience control. And so, so one way is to sort of influence the environment and change the environment, right? So if, I'm, if I don't like my job, then I'm going to maybe uh, find it, quit my job and find another job, right? So it's, you're influencing your situation. And the other way to perceive control is to, instead of changing the world and changing the environment, you change yourself. So you basically, instead of influencing, you're adjusting. So you adjust yourself to existing realities. And so across cultures, um, there are different dominant ways of perceiving control. So in the U.S., more you know, individualistic influence is kind of a dominant way of perceiving the world by influencing. And for example, in Japan, there's it, it's the people are need to coordinate much more. They're kind of more right collectivistic. So so they're um, taught to constantly adjust themselves in to different situations and play different roles and so forth. So I kind of connected that to climate change because climate change was. Uh, is kind of a, an overarching global problem in which uh, it sort of compels us to make adjustments to our lifestyles. So, so then I kind of hypothesized that um, it would be more challenging for people who are used to controlling, perceiving control by influencing the environment rather than adjusting themselves to the environment. And that's probably where you'll find 
a greater prevalence of, of resistance and den denial. Um, and so, yeah, uh, so that's sort of um, an area I've been looking at recently. So that's one of the big things from my perspective that's important that I want us to talk about today is this idea that there's something on some portion of our population's plate, right? Climate change being the subject for today. And the truth is, I think that if we wanted to go back at the end of this conversation, we could kind of plug in several different things, vaccinations. I mean, we could have any number of really fun, complicated, heated conversations because there's a lot of things where we end up feeling like we're on one side or the other. And so there's some stuff that I'm hoping we'll, we'll get to with Vinay in particular that for me, when he and I talked earlier, just kind of opened some doors for me in terms of understanding this difference between, tell me if I'm getting this right, influencing and adjusting, right? right? that I just hadn't thought about before. Like people that would ask me, well, why can't I help this person see why they should do A? And I would say, well, you know, as a therapist, are, what are their feelings? What are they afraid of? And that's a piece of it. But then when I added this layer that Vinay is researching and talking about, I thought, oh, that's not the only piece though. It's kind of this know your audience idea, right? I wanna read this um, brief quote and kind of springboard from here. If anyone who has concerns about youth mental health, so think therapists, teachers, family members, um, or for anyone who has connections to youth mental health, climate change is a real dimension of their mental health problems. And there's a ton of research that's showing this now. And of 81% of kids, there was a survey of 10,000 kids worldwide, 81% of them said they've talked to someone about their concerns and over or nearly half of them felt like they were either ignored or dismissed, right? And that's where the mental health question comes into play. So Maggie, I'm curious from your perspective, your time here, you know, helping to create Sunrise or the, you know, the branch of it here, have you come into that or experienced that feeling dismissed or ignored? Yes, absolutely, is the short answer. I think that's one of the biggest frustrations as the study shows that young people feel like no one's taking them seriously that we really aren't being listened to that our our futures are being written off as climate change just being inevitable that it's more about finding technological solutions out of out of this problem than actually you know addressing root causes and that can be very frustrating i found that people my age and younger are really good at sniffing out BS. <laughs> so when a politician or a corporation or anyone in any position of power says, oh, we're doing X, Y, Z to address this issue, if it's not really genuine, it's pretty easy to for young people to figure that out and to become disillusioned or like deeply upset about that, understandably. I think there's a lot of mistrust as well because there's been such a coordinated effort and maybe I'm rambling, but I'm just gonna keep going. Please do. There's been, there's been such a coordinated effort by people in power, corporations, um, the oil and gas industry, et cetera, to put the onus on individuals which kind of goes back to what Vinay was saying, right, about us, young people especially, being fed all these messages that individual action 
is what will solve this crisis of climate change. And that's simply not true. Well, and that's why back to the, so it was influence and adapt? Adjusting. Adjust. Yeah. One of the things that's so fascinating about what y'all did at Sunrise conceptually, because I'm the oldest possible millennial and I feel that the weight of that <laughs> adjective every day more and more. The environmental activism that I grew up with, even, you know, up to, you know, Al Gore's documentary and stuff was it's like you have to care about climate change qua climate change. You have to like that's if it's the spotted owl or whatever, that's what you have. You have to care about the environment as a thing in and of itself, separate from any other conditions. And actually having grown up in a pretty conservative place out in the country, but also in a conservative Christian sort of evangelical environment, I heard people talking about like, they care about the spotted owl more than they talk. They care about my job, which is someone's mm -hmm. livelihood. And I actually just heard this on a different, like a podcast talking about jobs in the Rust Belt it was like, for folks that we need that are doing the jobs that need to decarbonize, we need to think of a, or figure out a way to sort of those things are in opposition and intensely. So it was actually cold country. It was a it was a West Virginia conversation about how West Virginia from the '90s to now went from being the most literally the most progressive, solidly democratic state in the union to one of the most conservative because those things were in opposite set up as in opposition to each other and obviously people chose their livelihood over and at that time maybe more of an abstraction like the heat death of our planet so it strikes me that, that with the work that sunrise is doing there was an adjustment made from historic tactics to this thing that's more like no what we're and that's kind of how we also get the green new deal and stuff like that is like this is the biggest problem we've ever faced, and it's going to take a holistic rethinking of everything, including our economy. And that's one of the things that was actually gave me more hope was just the way that Sunrise is thinking about the problem. Well, it's sort of a new wave of environmental activism, I guess you could say, because for so long, the environmental movement was dominated by white people who were middle and upper class. Um, and very male dominated as well. So there's a healthy amount of skepticism that people had about that sort of elitist um, way of looking at environmental issues. So you think back to, you know, kind of the environmental movement of the late 1900s, I guess, and that that becomes very clear. So what Sunrise is trying to do is focus more on justice and care for each other and an understanding of intersectionality and that this is not just about polar bears it's about housing it's about healthcare, right. it's about education it's about caring for our communities and and not just the trees that grow there but also the people who live there right so i, I think that's a very intentional shift and um a really important one too so I have a question then, because this is what interests me so much about this. So I sit across from someone, right, who's struggling with their concerns either for themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing teenagers who are like, why bother, right? I'm hearing new parents who are like, did I make a mistake? I mean, this is tough stuff. We should probably provide make a trigger warning. Make a mistake having warning. a kid. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's also the reality, right? And I, as a professional, I'm really well-trained at having tough conversations. So here we are. Um, but, you know, Vinay, maybe I'm aiming this towards you. 
Maggie's talking about this idea that we think more holistically to save our planet, yeah. right? Did I get that? Did I sum that up fairly well? Yes. Okay. So I love that idea. But after you and I spoke, I realized I'm totally a holistic thinker. Like, it's easy for me to take that on. Your research says it's not easy for everyone. Right. Yeah. So in terms of how culture influences habits of thinking, people who are kind of in an environment where they're constantly having to coordinate with each other and adjust to each other and play roles and so forth, that they're more used to thinking about how how things are related to one another. So thinking holistically means thinking about relationships, right? And then if um, if you're kind of focused more on your internal attributes and yourself, uh, then that kind of fosters a habit of thinking where you're thinking of events and objects as individual entities, right? And so you're not thinking as much about connections with each other. So so the the holistic way of thinking is kind of basically relational thinking, thinking about how things are related to one another, right? If how events are related to one another. So that habit of thinking is kind of fostered through this practice of uh, constantly, you know, uh, adjusting yourself and coordinating. And so that is okay. So, I mean, it's possible to get people to think that way. Uh, even, in, in, you know, I can get sort of individualists to think more collectivistically if you want, if you will. But um, the, you know, you, you can do these things in experimental manipulations, right? Just by circling pronouns like I versus we, you know, right. and suddenly, at least temporarily, they can start to think, see, see how things are related to each other more easily. So the Hazel Marcus at that Stanford University and her colleagues kind of used these strategies to get people to change their mindsets. But what, what she found was that um, even though you could get at least European Americans who were more kind of individualistic to think more holistically, the they feel less empowered when they do that. And so, mm. they, so they're not, right, uh, it's sort of, it's a little demotivating compared to getting them to think as an individual. So what she says is for, you know, issues like climate change, um, instead of framing, you could just change the framing. So instead of framing the problem as we have to be concerned for each other, uh, it seems to be more motivating, at least for individualists. So she she compared Asian-American students and, and European-Americans. So for Asian-Americans, it wasn't a, an issue. Their motivation didn't go down when they were thinking holistically. But uh, for the Europeans, it was more motivating to frame the problem as something that is more empowering as an individual so and and more related to influencing like i'm making i'm making a difference right um so they can still think about doing things for the community but if they frame it as i'm i have power to make a difference i have a power the power to impact so when i recycle something um i um you know i'm making a difference as opposed to I'm doing this, you know, uh, just just to kind of be a good citizen. Right, right. Um, good so, for the planet. Yeah, yeah. Good so, for me. So then, then they they become more empowered and more motivated. I'm not saying that uh, it's not possible to be motivated to to think holistically. It's just that it's 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 a bigger hurdle, I think, if you have a habit of thinking in 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 a more sort of um, non-holistic, what is called an analytic way of thinking about things. Yeah. Well, and what's fascinating about that is that like, that's a mindset thing for individual activists. And this actually kind of gets back to what you were talking about, uh, Maggie, a second ago, where you're like, oil companies have, you know, and just the fossil fuel industry and our government to some extent has like spent all this time 
making it all about recycling, which is good. You know, nobody don't stop recycling anybody or getting electric cars now is like the cool thing. It's like, what's going to be a more powerful thing if we can get each individual person that has the capacity to buy an electric car or to get all of those people to fight to end, you know, like Norway's just banned electric cars by 2025. So wait, banned. Sorry. Okay. Combustion cars. So Norway is like, we're not going to sell any more combustion cars by 2025. And I just saw an article the other day that was like, we're actually going to be probably a hundred percent EV sales by the end of this year. So people in Norway and maybe there's, you know, Northern Europeans are probably more collectivist than Western Europeans. But the idea though, was like, okay, we set a goal. And now people are thinking individually and actually maybe probably pragmatically. It's like, do I really want to, I need to buy a new car. I guess, oh my God, this thing's looming. Maybe, and we just did it with light bulbs too. We did it with incandescent light bulbs a few years ago. Because like my, my mind, when, we, when you were talking about individualism, immediately went to stuff like, I'm going to make sure that I re- my household recycles. We know that's not going to be enough. But there is a way to sort of like individually empower people to take collective action. And that's kind of what Sunrise right. is doing, right. which right. I really love. Right. Yeah. So it's the framing. Right. So even if you're the result is you're 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 behaving for the good of the whole. If it's framed as I'm feeling empowered to make a difference that I'm making. it. So, yeah, it it can work. I think focusing on smaller things that you can do in your local community helps with that, because climate change is such an existential, enormous, terrifying thing when you think about it as a global issue, when you frame it as something like as an individual, you can make a difference, like you're saying, Vinay, in your community by doing X, Y, Z, that's a lot more empowering um, and helps inspire more hope than if you're trying to think about how to, you know, do something about sea level rise in West Africa or floods in Germany, right? So yeah, that I, I think young people respond super well to that, knowing that they can, like you were just saying, Luke, be a part of a collective uh, movement or or action, but that they as an individual are like very needed to make that happen. Yeah, one of the things I'm wondering about is, are, are there more young people, and maybe it's just that I spent most of my time getting ready for our conversation today, reading articles about the young people most dramatically impacted by this, most of whom are likely more holistic thinkers. But what occurs to me is, are are there more? Like are, in our younger generations, we're seeing a lot of change. We talked, we've, I've talked about this in a lot of different contexts. We have more words for gender now. We have more varied relationship dynamics. And there are a lot of things that feel like they're changing and we're seeing them very clearly in our younger generations. But I also worry, I think, as a clinician that um, that idea of doing just one thing or making a few small steps, is it enough for it? Mm-hmm. What do we need to feel to feel like we're doing enough? Because the re- what the research is showing is that there's just more anxiety. There's more fear and anxiety and that concerns about anxiety related to the climate are being shown to take away hope and happiness, mm-hmm. right? 
And part of what I want for us to, you know, kind of this conversation to to maybe start for even just a handful of people is just being able to think about, okay, are there different ways to connect to my community out there, to be aware that not everyone thinks like I do? Because I think we focus so much on the feeling, like they don't feel the same way I do. They don't hold the same values I do. What if it's not that? What if it's how we care for ourselves is different, right? And that we have to know each other's language. Right? But how do we help our young people feel good about kind of taking that battle on? I don't think that hope comes naturally when it's 110 degrees outside and there's wildfire smoke in the air. So it has to be an intentional practice. It's not, it's not something that's just going to ex- exist. <laughs> I mean, for some, I mean, I've had conversations with my 11-year-old cousin who is, you know, feeling incredibly discouraged by climate change and very fearful. And I think just being able to express those feelings and knowing that other people feel the same way helps. Storytelling is a practice that we that we teach and we do often in Sunrise. And that's just like a very genuine human expression of our fears and just knowing that and being able to connect with with other people about that and hear that other people are going through the same sort of emotions helps but feeling like you're not alone is part of it it's not it's not all of it but that helps helps stay hopeful helps people stay hopeful it sure helps me stay hopeful as i get older and I sort of understand my elders better and sort of, and maybe just like where I was, the water they were swimming in at the time. It just feels like the individualism was more of like a, oh my God, it was a, a panic response to feeling like I have so little and I have to keep what there is. Mm-hmm. feels like there's always collectivism somewhere. It just, it's how you sort of define the collective. My incredibly conservative evangelical church had like, socialism or you know it had like you know young activists would call mutual aid for like anybody within the church who was part of the in-group there was an incredible amount of charity and incredible amount of generosity and it was sort of in in a context that was like it's us versus them to some extent which is you know a whole other topic but i guess it's like what i've what i spend so much time thinking about are these you know these rural communities that have felt sort of abandoned by the larger culture in a lot of ways and have sort of created their own, but also the larger economy is shifting more and more urban. Is there a way back to a place where we start feeling like part of a collective again, more as like a, a, a totality of people? But then it strikes me that the the American story has always been about rugged individualism, especially in the West. So are we writing a new American story, back to your idea of storytelling, Maggie, or what, what is, what's that going to look like? And I'm just where I'm asking everybody to speculate here or or in your experience, what have you seen work in the research or in, in your in your work with Sunrise, Maggie? Can I interject for just a minute? Because we talked a little bit about this. Maybe, Vinay, you could t- just share a little bit about what we talked about in terms of, I mean, it's culture. That's what the big sort of woohoo for me was, is that your culture influences the way, your your cultural experience is influencing the way you think. So you gave the example of the rice and the wheat farmer. And I just was like, after we talked, I spent all this time thinking about all these different examples of where I think of that. I started as an individual therapist. I became a family therapist. I kind of spent some time thinking about 
the difference between who I was in the room with my clients and what I asked them to focus on and how I framed it. And it shifted when I became a family therapist because all of a sudden I'm talking about systems and I have to think about systems. So um, maybe sharing a little bit about that, how culture, what culture has told us about thinking. In the broadest sense, um, humans have uh, essentially mastered uh, diverse environments, right? And so different environments have different problems to uh, solve and Right, some some environments are more unstable, especially with climate and natural disasters and pathogens and so forth. Others are more stable. So then, yeah, um, culture then can be so cultural evolution would kind of adapt to those environments. So if you are, there would be it would be less costly to to um, to live your life being more concerned about your personal goals rather than the collective goals in a stable environment, in a relatively stable environment. But if if you're in a less stable environment, you have to rely more on each other, then you have to sort of start to prioritize kind of more group group goals, right? And so, um, so for example, even if you look at um, infectious diseases and how prevalent they were throughout history, uh, it's a pretty strong correlation that regions that have had a historical prevalence of pathogens are more today collectivistic and, and those who are that are less prevalent in pathogens are, are more individualistic, right? Wow. So the environment kind of shapes how people organize their lives and this culture and then our psychologies then adapt to those cultural ideas and practices, right? So I guess where, where was I going with this? <laughs> um, but in the end, you know, humans are not allowed, are not able to survive alone. Right? We, we are completely right, right. social creatures. We have to, um, you know, we've, we've been wired to learn from each other um, and um, coordinate and, and to um, navigate the social world. So whether you're an individualist or collectivist, right? So, so the only kind of difference there is how much it's just kind of relative how much do you get to prioritize personal goals and focus on specific events and objects as opposed to needing to pay attention to how everything is related to one another but um so yeah like a wheat farmer you know uh, uh, you'd find differences here even within china where a wheat farmer would would be more free to focus on their own personal goals um, because they're you know wheat is easier <laughs> than rice farming right. rice requires a lot more coordination, mm -hmm. complex irrigation system, and you have to sort of, um, you're, you're influencing your neighbor's land as well, so you have to really work together. And and, uh, and so, yeah, so we, the rice farmers tend to be more adjustment oriented, or at least even, you don't have to be a farmer, you could just be growing up in that yeah, rice region. culture. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And you would right. be more adjustment oriented. And this is even within China where the north is, is more wheat and the south is more rice, and you can see even the way right. people yeah. behave. But, um, so, but the point is everybody, if you're an individualist, it just means you're, the boundaries between your groups are more permeable, right? So you're not as, cons you don't make as much of a distinction between in-group and out-group, right? Um, you, you don't, uh, you make more of a distinction between individuals, but not so much between groups. But a collectivist, they're kind of more concerned about their in-group, right? So I think it speaks to uh, what you were saying, Luke, and, you know, in a small town, where they're they are more collectivist in a sense because they're they're dealing with a problem that is that they feel is not addressed by the larger society and so they're more protective of their group and they're making a greater distinction between their in group and out group right so with climate change you'd have if it can be framed as 
a problem that affects all of us equally, then we can make that we can make that boundary for the group much larger. Right. Right. Um, it's uh, it, I think it's easier to see that now with um, the very visible effects of climate change. But at the same time, there's a lot of existential threat associated with that in terms of those who are used to perceiving control by influencing the environment. And so they become defensive about protecting their yeah. way of life. And right. so then yeah. they could be that could translate to a more uh, um, intense resistance of of climate change, right? The reality of it. Um, and, and then on top of that, there's a universal phenomenon where uh, humans are they have an existential uh, fear when they're reminded of their own mortality. So, so, right. so climate change also <laughs> provides that sort of that kind of threat, right? Where, you know, um, what, what am I going to do? You know, if, if this continues, can I have kids or, you know, would it be fair if I have kids? And I mean, I've struggled, I keep, I still struggle with that. You know, yeah. uh, I feel guilty for having a kid sometimes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, right. I think that's, and then when I think about younger people where it's going to be even more challenging for them, that kind of hopelessness and so forth, uh, where you're constantly reminded of your mortality because of this existential, right? The climate change is a threat to our survival. Then, um, you know, uh, that can that can lead to um, all kinds of mental health <laughs> issues, right? I mean, and, and anxieties, uh, especially if they're not seeing the adults behaving, uh, you know, treating treating it as a serious problem. Yeah. Um, then it creates more hopelessness and so forth. So if we can bind together uh, with an overarching problem and frame it as something that it doesn't really affect, <laughs> climate change doesn't care which group you belong to, <laughs> we're all one group, then I think uh, you know there could be more hope. I'm kind of rambling. But <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> all right. That's the tricky bit, isn't it? Well, and it, it struck me that as we were talking about this, it's the American culture, as it was sort of defined and still like the, it's the Jesus and John Wayne thing that everybody's talking about so much right now with that book and stuff is like we are just a culture built on the idea of not everybody having enough. We were built on the idea that America is a land of abundance. It's the land of uh, of plenty. And if you just keep going west far enough, you'll find everything you could ever possibly need. The reality, and that was never true, right? And we had to take it from Native American people, which is a whole other topic. But the reality was when people got out here, it was actually really, really hard. And there weren't very many people. And so it was. it's an incredibly – it's like the the – the American myth is one of extreme abundance, but the American reality has always been one of pretty intense scarcity. And it's really fascinating how within those isolated groups, you get intense collectivism, but then there's still this othering that goes on that strikes me as maybe maybe America has the hardest problem to solve here. But then the other thing that it brought up to me was like, we keep talking about climate change as a problem, and it obviously is. But one of the things that's so fascinating about what Sunrise has done, just with the way that it talks about it, is it's it's like framing, reframing a lot of the stuff around you know jobs and stuff as opportunities, right? There are these emerging sectors that if we decided to behave a lot differently than we did during the first industrial revolution, we could build a more equitable society through the need to decarbonize and you know build new systems and more sustainable power sources and, and more sustainable transportation and stuff like that and so maybe you could talk about that a little bit because that's the other thing that it struck me is like back to the whole like 
the environmental movement was built by rich white people or you know comfortable white people and it was a, it's a doctrine that that early environmentalism was a doctrine of self-denial and scarcity where it's like oh i'm just gonna i'm not gonna buy as much i'm gonna make sure i turn off the lights i'm gonna try to buy the most fuel efficient car possible i'm going to it's a it's an act of like puritanical self-denial another thing that america is built on but a lot of people <laughs> don't have i'm speaking about like the place i grew up most people i knew could not sacrifice any more than they already did because they were already at the absolute bare minimum to even get by right there's a lot of hunt you know people like hunting my dad's a sportsman we also got a significant amount of our calories and it was it was a harder year if dad didn't get a deer during hunting season so part of it strikes me that what we're trying to do is build a more inclusive movement that just even allows people to come in and be like hey there's an opportunity here for a better life not just we have to all get together to solve an awful problem because it strikes me that if, like at a certain level if people are like bad enough off, it's like, okay, cool. Maybe the meteor should just come. Let's just let this thing burn to the ground because what else, you know, my life is already constrained to the point that I can't imagine more constraints being put on me. The shift that's so fascinating here is that like these, this, these newer movements in environmental activism were like, no, this is not this it's, it is a problem, but there is also a, a pretty intense opportunity. Yeah, talking about like our American culture and our cultural story really makes me think that, you know, a huge part of that is our political story and how decisions made 30, 40 years ago by our political leaders or by the 1% have brought us to this situation today. So a lot of what we focus on in Sunrise is, and what I've found is, useful in agitating young people and maintaining hope is that this crisis of climate change did not just come to be without people knowing about it. ExxonMobil knew in the 1970s about climate change and hid it from the public. Um, and there are still members of Congress today who are backed by ExxonMobil and other oil and gas companies and corporations that are perpetuating this issue along with other systems of oppression. So I think teaching that and understanding our political history and how we got to this point helps us look towards a future that can look different, a different political system, a different culture that goes along with that. That is creating a, a, a livable future for us, for future generations. I want to have kids. I'm 24. I'm dying to have kids. <laughs> and I, you know, don't know if that's in the cards for me because I, I see where we're at. Maybe if you asked me in early 2019, do you feel really hopeful hopeful about our political future in the United States? I would have said yes. I feel very hopeful about our political future in the United States. Today, I don't know, but <laughs> we're still, you know, the, the the way to to change our political system that we know historically is through movements through coalition building through building power at the base um, regular people getting involved with the political process in a deeper way than just showing up to the ballot box on election day right with our 
moving away from, you know, thinking collectively, that also goes hand in hand with decades of union busting and decades of pushing the individualist mindset at a political level. Like that was a political choice made and pushed by our leaders. So it's all connected, right? And like, I think work understanding and understanding our history and working towards something different, pushing towards a completely different political reality is something that is at sometimes it's nuanced, right? It's and sometimes it's really discouraging for young people because you can't vote if you're under 18. You money buys power in the United States. If you don't have money, that that doesn't that doesn't help much. Um, and in other ways, it can be really empowering when you um, when you see what can happen when someone like Ilhan Omar is elected to Congress or um, Cory Bush. So I I think that it's um, it's exactly what Sunrise and other youth organizations are trying to do by pushing for something like the Green New Deal, which is not just focusing on environmental reforms, but also kind of a complete upheaval of our economic um, system in the United States, taxing wealth and building out systems that work for everyone and not just a few people. So like you mentioned, Luke, that's transportation, that's um, a care economy that actually pays educators and caregivers a living wage and um, building a labor movement again. And that doesn't just happen with, um, you know, policies, but that actually happens with, you know, labor organizing on the ground. Um, and then all of all of those things kind of building towards a future that is moving away from fossil fuels. So it's not just saying we need to get off fossil fuels and that's the end all be all. It's really focusing on transforming our entire society. And we think that a Green New Deal is a step in the right direction. It's not everything, but um, it would be something that works for the folks who live in West Virginia just as much as it does the folks who are houseless on the streets of a major urban uh, city or whatnot. So um, it would really be like kind of a set of political decisions that would that would create a future that is more focused on on justice and caring for all people. That was truly a rant. So I that's okay. could I, could I uh, uh, piggyback on that? That's great. Um, I'm about to say something that might sound like I'm undermining uh, Meg. Makes <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, uh, um, so self care, self care issue. So I think self care is important, right? So I, I've done research on um, youth marginalization and cultural change and globalization and the impact of that, especially among Japanese youth. So what I learned from that is I had to collaborate. Uh, with sociologists and uh, economists and uh, other sort of people in, in 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 the social sciences, and and what they tell me is, you know, when I ask them what's happening with the the youth, right? They tell me the problem is psychology, <laughs> and the reason is the young people, right? So the young people now 
if if there are good reasons for feeling anxious and and sad and hopeless and so forth, right? Like like climate change and things like that. Right. You don't only want to just address the problem individually. You don't want to just address the problem as okay, I need therapy and I I need to feel good about myself, which, right. you know, of course you still need some, you need self-care, but you want to use, yeah, you want to use that frustration to create action and yeah. movements and, um, you know, grassroots movements right from the bottom up. Um, and if young people are like, okay, the problem is me because I'm anxious and I need to solve that as opposed to saying I'm anxious because there's a problem out there right. Right. and right. we need to bind together to, to, to try to do something about it, right? Then you don't want to completely devote all your energy to solving the problem within yourself. Or this is very, I thought it was very interesting because as a psychologist, mm -hmm. right, we're all focused on the individual. And, and then the, the sociologists and the anthropologists are telling me, well, that's part of the problem. You want to use that experience and that feeling as information about what's happening outside, outside yourself. And, and that's something that can motivate people to, you know, um, create, and political action, right? And so I don't know I mean, if it's- I mean, it, it does strike me that if if like psychology is a mostly, I mean, I'm gonna get the history wrong here, but a mostly post-capitalist phenomenon. I don't think you're getting the history too terribly wrong okay. here. It, it would make it sense that there's an entire discipline that grew up sort of In emphasizing world. individualism, but also then adjustment. If you can't, if individuals can't really affect power in the average like, you know, factory worker during Freud's time or, or up to today, it would make sense that like if that's the world you live in and then, then adjustment internal personal adjustment would be the thing that to make each individual patient feel best about their lot in life but it feels like we almost need to rethink what we're doing here to maybe start encouraging people to impact their world in a way that's healthy equally healthy and will help their mental so this is exactly why i love these conversations maggie and vinay you just did a beautiful job we could just put just that tiny, that one little bit out and that's all of it right there. You didn't undermine me at all. That's why we're here yeah. because, you know, I can sit across from anyone and talk to them about themselves and how do you take care of yourself in all these different moments. But I, I agree with the economists and the sociologists. In fact, I'm fascinated by sociology in particular for that reason because, and aspects of applied psychology as well, because do we focus on ourselves in a healing environment, in a, in a psychological environment. Yes. Should we as therapists, as we enter this next phase where climate-based anxiety is a real theme, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Should we be able to talk to our clients, not just about, okay, how do you manage your anxiety, but then also where's your voice? Right. And then we take it to that next level of do you understand that some of the people you speak to will speak a different language, will hear a different narrative? And I think if we can do all that and wrap it into Maggie's storytelling, we are golden. But we have to be having this conversation over and over again, engaging in particular in my world, other therapists. You know, there are lots of different theories of practice. Some are more holistic, mindfulness 
right? Mindfulness gets us there, I think, a lot faster than cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very much about what you think affects how you feel, affects how you react, affects your outcomes. And the assumption is that your sort of distress is a function of distorted feelings and thinking. Of your own. Of your own, as opposed to, well, there are good reasons for you to feel this way. So maybe we should solve the problem. And that's, I think, what I was alluding to before when I started out as a, you know, individual therapist and shifted to family therapy. I noticed the big thing that changed for me was that then when I work with individuals, I I have kept that. I talk to them about, okay, absolutely, can you change the outcome here? You can't change what happened, but you can change the outcome. But you also get to have your feelings. And if we can take that step for people and then then create pathways, you know, through organizations, through this idea of sharing our stories, of helping them to then use their voice, I think people would feel more comfortable because what I see is hopelessness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A sense of I don't know where to dig in. And I think therapy could be helping with that, but it has to shift its focus. Therapy is about talking. It seems like an aspect of it is like how to use your human agency to sort of like make yourself feel better about the world. Like you're saying, it's a lot of it's so internally focused, which is fine if there isn't a real reasonable existential threat, in which case we need to have discussions about how to sort of make that balance that agency more where you're sort of being an actual agent in the world and not just an agent to yourself. That's really fascinating to me. And it strikes me that like in a in a context of like, you know, when America was born and when capitalism was growing up, there was a I read a bunch of books about early evangelicalism or like partially read a bunch of books about it and listened to a bunch of podcasts. And like there was an idea in the Reformed Church, Puritanism, Calvinism, that there were basically like two messages poor people and rich people could get, you know, and reform Christianity in this is like really kind of the first post-capitalist religious ideology, faith ideology. Where it was like the rich people were literally told, if you're rich, it's God's will. Go and it's like and and God wants you to improve the land, which is one of the justifications for taking uh, land away from the Indians. It was like they're just not they're not doing anything with it. So let's take it from them and do. God wants us to do stuff with it. And if your act of improving God's creation makes you filthy rich, that's great. And then it was like, and this is the message I got in my church. So 500 years later, these messages are still passed down. My church growing up was, if you're suffering, be kind to your neighbor, be kind to your family, do what you can. But you're, but if you're a faithful person, your, your rewards in heaven. So don't even worry about this world. Right. Which is what I, I think a lot of, and you know, evangelicalism is so permeates our culture that even if you're not a person of immense faith or you go to church, you've, you've internalized some of that. The other thing that's like less uh, germane here was that there are actually like thinkers who were high up in, in these church circles who were like, if the industrial machines you're making kill people, God wanted them to die. It's fine. And if it's and if work is hard for them, it's awful, it's crushing and they die young. That's also God's will. So you're good. Dude. Like, don't worry about anything. And that's kind of where the predestination stuff gets really entrenched into 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 religious dogma, and and it mo- and it motivates like these two turns in, in a really really fascinating way. And so I think we've been taught people who sort of don't come from means were culturally sort of indoctrinated. Just be like, hey, just try to get along, do the best you can, do the best you can for your family or whoever feels like close to you, and just try to get through it, buddy. Just try to get through it, and. Again, I'm just going to keep coming back to why I'm so impressed with Sunrise. Is like rather than asking those sorts of people to sacrifice more, it's like let's work together to solve to create a better world for everybody, and that's really really powerful to me. And that's the, that's the first sort of message I've ever heard when I think pay attention to this stuff, where it's like, oh, I could see 
the people I grew up with grabbing onto a version of that, if it's sort of a story that's told in the right way for that community, just as much as all my neighbors on the South Hill who are like buying Teslas if they can afford it and, and definitely recycling every, you know, two weeks now. Yeah, I think in, in general, like young people, Gen Z is very disillusioned with um, the culture that has been created by capitalism, the rat race, the constant need to be proving yourself or or like always working or always trying to be on top. I think there's, yeah, a lot of disillusion, disillusionment with that. And, um, but there's Maggie, don't you think there's also action? Like uh, so many of the younger generation, I, I just, I think the more I notice, the more impressed I am with the people who come after us. Uh, I'm, I suck at knowing which generation is which. And so I'm overusing that term, but, but the, the younger generations, they are demanding, like, okay, Luke, we made fun of millennials for demanding a lot of things, especially in the workplace, right? For a long time, people would go around, oh, God, I got to work with a millennial, just all that stuff. And then someone said to me once, what if it's a language thing? What if they just speak a different language? And that was like rug out from underneath my feet. I literally sat down and I was like, oh, crap, what does that mean? And it made me realize, well, what are they asking for? Why are they asking for it? And it changed the way I looked at young people in the workforce. And all of a sudden, I saw something so incredibly beautiful. Young people who were like, no, I, I nah, 60 hours, nope, no thank you. Yeah, just Climb, no. uh, you know. Uh, hike in the Cascades, absolutely be on on Tuesday. And there's zero, as a, as a mental health practitioner, there is zero that I can find that's wrong with that. In fact, if anything, does it create more people who have the internal energy to create a more collective society? Absolutely. Because do we work ourselves to the collective bone, and then I'm sorry, but the latest Netflix show is gonna trump recycling or you know politics or anything that requires brain power. I think that there's a lot of hope, but it has to be noticed. And and do we need to be changing the way we talk about it? There's a, a researcher, Jean Twenge, uh, at uh, San Diego State University. She Her area of specialization is looking at how people's psychologies change across generations. So she kind of talks, talks about the the generation me, that was the millennial and the generation X, that's me also. Uh, and then the iGen would be the, the Gen Z. Okay, so, so what she's... Well, interestingly, it's kind of it seems to be the new Gen Z seems to be more empathetic to strangers and their predicaments and care about social justice, right? And so they are actually kind of caring more about people outside their own groups. And and they're yeah, they create language, you know, which older people might call, you know, being too politically correct or something, but they create language to to be more inclusive, right? And and so that, you know, there's a lot of Good. Thing. In fact, even even um, you know they're they're not as hedonistic. <laughs> if you want to, right, according to so in terms of like drinking alcohol and and you know having having um, physical relationships very early on, they're they're waiting for that much more. And, and but at the same time, they're also more vulnerable 
uh, uh, to mental health issues. So you see the suicide rates and the depressive rates and anxiety rates just kind of skyrocketing there too. And then that's partly because of social media and the information overload and it's so hard to navigate, you know, all of these conflicting cultural messages that they're getting, right? Um, So it's a very tough space for them, I think, uh, you know, but at the same time that motivates them to prioritize what's important to them and they're binding around that. Well, and that's why I think like when you were saying disillusionment, Maggie, I don't think you meant it in like a Gen X nihilistic way. It was more like it's a disillusionment with the status quo and I want to find a new way to do it. Is that kind of what you were getting at? There's a little of both, right? So I was leading a training for about 30 high school and middle school students in February of 2019. So pre-COVID. And there was a young woman, high school student, who was talking about uh, a kid in her class at school who expressed that he wanted a meteor to just hit Earth and burn it all before climate change can ruin everything. Very, very nihilistic. And I saw everyone nodding their head. Oh, yeah. Huh? Yep. I've heard that. And I said, wait, so so how many of you feel like many of your peers are deeply nihilistic or deeply unconvinced that a better future is possible? And everyone raised their hand. Every single person raised their hand. That's, I think, what we're talking about, right? That's the deep, deep depression that feels totally hopeless. That's why suicide rates are up. It's exacerbated by social media. It's it's a crisis. It really is. Like it is so sad. I mean, every single person I know, my age or younger, has dealt with anxiety, depression, some sort of mental health issue. And I think that's super new. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know the studies necessarily, but based off of my own experience, I've known plenty of people who have committed suicide. There were multiple school shootings that happened while I was in high school. I've been on Facebook since I was in eighth grade, and it is seriously the worst thing. I will just say all of the cons of social media way outweigh the pros. It is um, a, <laughs> a dark and deeply individualistic place. So there's, there's sorry to get dark, but there's like a little... <laughs> Of both. I think it's nuanced, right? And I think that like showing up to something where whether it's a, you know, a climate strike or a reading group that you put together in your school or even an environmental club that you put together to try to improve recycling in your school or anything, getting, getting out there, talking to people, getting involved in some way really helps. Because that sort of nihilism is a problem. It's kind of a disease of sorts that can take over if you don't find a way to take action in whatever way that looks like. You're now, I mean, this is my realm, right? So so when we're when our nervous system is triggered, when we are depressed or anxious, um, both of which go with nihilism, right? And we're really deeply sad. We're in a part of our nervous system where our body is hardwired to try and figure out how to get us out of that. And so, Maggie, I'm really glad you kind of clarified that point because I think having this conversation without having this bit 
You know, this is really, really important. Action is going to matter moving forward. And again, when I'm speaking to my community of practitioners, but even teachers and medical professionals, our pediatricians, people who are talking to our teens and our young people, being able to talk about our mental health is great. Understanding when someone's depressed and, and offering the medication or a referral to therapy, all really good resources. Therapists maybe think starting to think about individualistic with a collective sort of where's my voice spin? I, I like that idea. I think that this is something I want to keep pursuing in terms of how do we get that message out to people? Is it benefiting our youth? But then to top it all off, action matters because our bodies are hardwired to try and solve the problem that is our anxiety, that is our depression, that is our sadness and make it go away. It's supposed to be a closed loop. Right. Right? And I think environmental crisis is an example of a loop that doesn't quite close. And then our, you know, we have what in clinical terms is called a downward spiral. Action has been proven to turn that downward spiral into an upward spiral. Just that one thing, just doing one thing. And so it's interesting because sometimes I think people feel like, well, just one thing doesn't matter. In these moments, it would. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even just showing up to hand out peanut butter and jellies on the street or like go to a river trash pickup. I saw in my job at Lands Council, like how healing actually getting your hands in the soil can be for kids. It's really, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be too much. Hopefully it's something that's sustained and that happens more than once. But yeah, I, I really agree with you, Meg, that um, action is healing. Yeah, and also the um, part of the problem with social media is it's also isolating. So when you when you engage in collective action, it also provides social support, right? And then also you feel like you're needed, <laughs> and you're right. Yeah, right. Uh, yes. yeah it was uh, um, in Japan in 2011 during the tsunami, and right, um, and I was doing my sabbatical there. So I was and I was studying youth marginalization, and it was interesting because. Um, the first, the people who immediately volunteered to go to to that region north in northern part of Japan uh, were the young people, and these are young people who felt they were quite um, lost. They were they didn't know what to do with their lives. They didn't feel needed by adults and so forth. Right, so they bound together and they they went and they and you know they volunteered and they helped out and. And they were, you know, at the end of the day, they're kind of, they were, I saw this on, on news, um, they were crying. And so the interviewer asked, why are you crying? He says, because we feel so much more needed here. Right? Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, we felt, we feel connected to each other. Um, and so the disconnect, uh, this is, you know, I would, my, my kind of opinion is that isolation is universally bad, right? right. And social media yes. tends to isolate. It's right. really bad. Yes. And, the, and, the, and the iGen, the new generation is constantly, I mean, their, their, their attention is co- constantly demanded uh, for doing isolated tasks. And it's really... Yeah. Since this got real heavy toward the end, there's a thing that I usually do on my part of the show that maybe we could go do a round robin of like, <clears throat> despite all the heavy stuff we've talked about, what gives you hope right now? To your point, Meg, the only thing that gives me hope is the people younger than me, to be completely honest, and how much I've learned from them over the years about how to have agency in my own life. Like, and it's not just around political activism. It's also about, you know, I started as a journalist, which is a very... It's kind of an isolated profession. 
but you're talking to people all the time. You're, you're documenting the world. When we started the nonprofit, we started acting in the world and the people that really helped us build that nonprofit, the arts nonprofit early on were people younger than us. And it was actually, to me, felt like it was the kids who were having really awful career prospects after 08, 09 were plowing that energy because they couldn't, you know, they were baristas and, you know, they weren't, these were educated people that weren't able to start their careers right away. They plowed a lot of that energy into volunteerism in a way that really, I don't think terrain would have become what it's become without it. And then I guess Maggie, you're probably, I guess you're like the youngest millennial. What are you, what are you, what do you, how do you self-identify or do you? Um, I think it's called a zillennial. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're a cusper like I am. Yeah. Born in the late nineties makes you a zillennial. Okay. <laughs> so like, and that's, and I feel like we could have a whole conversation about cusp, like, you know, cuspy generations, but like these Gen Z people and the people that have been gravitated to movements like sunrise are really getting into this whole idea of like the collective action. It's almost like the, the, the kids that I was connecting with in 08, 09 were, found their way to the tsunami zone because they were like, I, f I need to feel needed somewhere. I can't start a career. I, I have no, you know, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels. And they found that in, in volunteerism. And now I feel like the next step is being taken. And I'm sorry if I'm sounding too hopeful <laughs> here, Maggie. It's like, okay, let's turn that like, now that we found each other to some extent and the world's still just as broken as it was, now let's turn that into collective action. That gives me a ton of hope. I don't know if it'll happen in time, but there's that's that's where I mind my hope. Hope is, like um, I mentioned earlier, something you have to practice, I think, because we're constantly flooded with bad news all day, every day of oppression happening across the world. I absolutely broke down when I saw that photo of the um, ICE uh, security police guard, whoever it was, whipping Haitian migrants um, yeah, at the border. Awful horrifying we're constantly flooded with that sort of imagery um and it's it's right in our faces so it's um yeah it's an intentional thing you have to really practice and work on and integrate into your routine like brushing your teeth <laughs> is you know sitting thinking of what you're grateful for and thinking about what you're fighting for, right? Like what you are are working towards or what you what you want to see in the future. What's what is worth fighting for? That's something a phrase we say a lot in Sunrise. What are you fighting for? And when we when we talk about that, people's eyes light up. I, you know, I'm fighting for my family or I'm fighting for my home. I'm fighting for, you know, the ability to have children someday um so I, I think in general i'm a pretty positive person <laughs> despite really involving myself in all this kind of depressing work so i i don't know i'm also like similarly hopeful because of how committed uh young people are to fighting these systems of oppression and not just taking individual action but like really working towards breaking down all of these racist systems that are in place in this country um, that are perpetuating issues like climate change. So I think that deep understanding of our political moment that is so astute that I hear from 
you know, kids as young as 11, um, that really gives me hope because that means there are folks out there who are fighting for the same things I'm fighting for. Yeah, it's momentum, isn't it? Like the tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. It it almost feels like there's a shift now that there are more and more voices that are like, nope, sorry, I'm not waiting for you to do the right thing. Do it now. And I think in, we won't talk about what generation I come from. Just everybody be polite about that. Um, but you know what I can say is this: this isn't new, right? I was worried about this in eighth grade. I went. I remember going to the polls before. I think it was Reagan was being elected. Okay, I outed myself there, um, and I wasn't quite old enough to vote, and just being really concerned about nuclear proliferation and just all of that, and and being both hopeful, but also, you know, it, it's been going on that long. But I think people from my generation and people about my age, I think for a long time we felt like our voices don't go anywhere. Yeah. And what I see, what would I mean, there are a lot of things that give me hope. This conversation is absolutely one of them because they're happening now. And that's really, really exciting for me. And new information, just being able to take everything that we've talked about today and talk to my team about it and I have a bunch of people who work with teens and really start to shift that focus that also gives me hope but I think more than anything it's watching my own kids say I will be more inclusive um I will not tolerate it if you use the wrong pronouns the wrong labels the wrong ideas and I expect you to do different now not in, you know don't give me a week from now do it now and that it's hard I'll admit that but it also um it's worth every minute of it. This is a great place for us to to wrap it up. I, I want to thank you all for talking today about. Um, you know, it's interesting when we when I when we talked about this idea, and Luke, you mentioned let's do this now. I think in the back of my mind, I was like, uh huh, yeah, we need to do this. But in I don't think what I, the feeling I have right now it's a little bit different from the feeling I had coming in which was this is important yes but I think especially after talking with the three of you the timing just couldn't be any better and um we do we have kids in crisis and I don't want us to be shying away from these conversations if the pandemic if, if you can draw silver linings from the pandemic and I said this earlier we're no longer able to pretend that mental health doesn't matter. And and that, I don't even know if I like the way that sounds. I've been wrestling with that a lot. Like, I think people know mental health matters, but I think it's been easy for a lot of us to compartmentalize in this very specific way. Like, I, I can't deal with it now. Or, you know, like, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. And then we just go about our different ways. And I've been a huge advocate for you being able to say, well, I'm not okay, but I will be for a long time. But this is a whole nother level of that. We are not okay. Our kids are struggling. There's more anxiety. Maggie, I did read all the research. There's more anxiety. There's more depression. There absolutely is more suicidal ideation. And we need to be talking about that. And what I love about this today is that you've given me, us, the community, some really excellent things to think about in terms of how we come together, how we think about each other's responses, and how we help each other take action. And I want to thank you all. Yeah, thank you. Thank Can you I, guys so much. Oh, yeah, I, I yeah go ahead. No, please. okay. So, I, um, I think I just uh, one thing occurred to me about addressing the vulnerability issue, right? So, the 
the collective actions that the, the young people are taking and the inclusivity and sort of even sort of teaching the older generation, right? What's really important now, uh, at least for a future generation. See, that's all really good. And then, but the, the fact that they're also more vulnerable to, um, you know, all kinds of emotional distress. And the one thing that Jonathan Haidt, uh, who's another psychologist at Columbia says, um, is that we, we have to also teach, we, somehow we've lost a, a way to teach people to also be resilient. I'm not sure how to do that, but then if they're gonna face a lot of challenges now, then they have to, uh, we have to find a way to also teach them to be resilient. And I mean, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, right? You would do that by not avoiding problems or avoiding bad feelings, right? right. If, if you're constantly avoiding, then it just exacerbates the problem. So if you have to learn how to tolerate those uh, discomforts, then you can become more resilient. But I'm not sure how to do that you know, at a generational level. So on the one hand, if, we, if we're too sensitive to their vulnerabilities, then it might undermine their resilience. And I, that's, I think I always think about that as a challenge for how to move forward is how do we um, balance self-care resilience and action. And the resilience piece always seems to be kind of getting to be less. less well, that's what know. Maggie was yeah. inferring, right? And, and so it, from my perspective, that resilience and how we grow more of it, that's a that's a whole nother hour. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, and it also feels like I think what, yes. we're, what we're talking about with the action stuff is building societal, cultural, generational resilience. Yes. Right. And so yeah. It's, yeah. maybe it just takes shifting our vocabulary for these things. And especially if me the mental health practice could come around to more of a balance between the internal and the external work and advocating action, maybe maybe that is that maybe that's a, it's just a different kind it's resiliency by another name or by another approach i don't know well the whole point of us sitting and talking like this was to begin to really open the doors for community conversations about mental health our our collective well-being i think there are opportunities i mean the, the therapist in me is going to go home now and just like process for days all these little bits and try to mine all the nuggets and see you know where is this applicable but i think there are other conversations to be had this isn't i i hope and this is not our our last by any means because this is complex it's layered it's human right and it's emotional I mean, you all shared bits and pieces. Maggie, I, I didn't want to end today without thanking you for being a little bit raw and vulnerable. That that means the world to me because it's true. It's real. It's it's why we're here. And so we will come back to this probably over and over again. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys yeah, so much. Thank you, Maggie. Yeah, thank you. Man, that was heavy, but also pretty awesome. I I feel better. I hope you do a little bit. I want to thank Meg for spearheading the episode. I want to thank Maggie and Vinay for joining us. It's not an easy thing to do this work. It's probably even harder to talk about it in a semi-public forum uh, with people you've just met. So the openness was really, really appreciated. If you like what we're doing at Range, please support us at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Here's a new one. Rate and review us on iTunes, whether or not you actually get your podcasts from iTunes. It was a little low energy at the beginning of this thing. I've decided to pick it up a little bit. It's a little late at night, but I'm going to pretend I have a ton of energy. So rate and review us. <laughs> rate and review us on iTunes. 
It's obviously how people get discovered on iTunes, but other third-party podcast apps use iTunes ratings to drive their own systems of discovery. So whether you use it or not, rate and review us on iTunes. And again, if you have the means, rangemedia.co slash subscribe, support us. I want to thank Brennan Pointer, Connor Bacon, Kayla Brook, and once again, Meg, for helping put this episode together. We'll be back next week talking about real estate. You know what it takes to sell real estate? takes brass balls to sell real estate. If you want the Glengarry leads, you're not going to want to miss that one. In the meantime, have a good week, everyone. Bye. Bye.